Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, hello, Epicos. Um, my name is Frank. I'm one of the teaching pastors. I'm also the Mayfair Road campus pastor. Um, when life gets confusing or um, difficult, it's easy to shrink back and to uh, kind of run away or just go to like a safe space where you feel like you're in control and things like that. But what we actually need to do is to reorient ourselves back to God's word, his truth, and the gospel. And, and when we remind ourselves of the gospel, what we're doing is we're hitching our hopes and all of our fears and concerns on God who can actually do something about it, right? And, and when we remember our position in the place of God's hands, it's right exactly where we need to be. And ironically, about eight months ago, when we were planning this series, on this day it was scheduled that we were going to be in the book of Ephesians, which in this book today we're going to remind ourselves of that very thing, of our past sins, of our current sins, what Christ has done with those sins, what he's done in our lives, and more importantly, where we should be moving forward in life. So we're going to open today in God's word to Ephesians chapter 2. So if your Bible, open to Ephesians 2, and let's remember the gospel in this current moment that we are at. In Epicus, all right? While you're turning there, let me tell you about this pet parakeet I had when I was in middle school. You might be like, Frank, why did you have a pet parakeet? Don't worry about that. But I thought it was cool to uh, grab an exotic bird from the, you know, the jungle and put it in a two-foot-by-two-foot cage in my bedroom. Like, have we not considered how weird it is that people have pet birds? Like, that's a psychotic thing for us to do, but that's besides the point. Um... I went on a trip uh, for a week, and I remember uh, asking my mom, like, hey, when I'm gone, can you please, like, take care of my bird? And so I taught her, like, how to put water in the little cup thing, how to put seeds, how to change the newspaper, and how to put a blanket over the cage because birds can't sleep unless you tuck them in. You know what I'm saying? So I did all that. I went away. When I came back, I said hi to my mom because it's Mother's Day. I did say hi to her. I didn't ignore her. And then I ran to my room, and I lift the blanket up, and look and behold, my bird was on the bottom of the cage on its side sleeping. And I was like, you must have had a wild night last night looking forward to me, you know what I'm saying? So I put the blanket on, I said, I'll come back in a couple hours, get some rest. I left, when I came back, I lift the blanket up, and the bird was still laying on its side. Now listen, I was in middle school. I've never seen a bird sleep. Have you ever seen a bird sleep? No, because there's a blanket over it, all right? I don't know how birds sleep, all right? So I was trying to, to figure out, you know, maybe I need to wake this bird up because it just knocked out, like took a little bird melatonin or something. So I, I got a pencil and I started poking at it because that's what middle school boys do, right? Started poking at it, trying to wake it up. And that was the moment when I realized I don't think my parakeet's asleep. I think my parakeet died. And so I felt bad and I wanted to honor and respect this bird. So I wanted to give this bird a burial at sea. Um, so the first thing I did was I went and got a sock and put it on my hand because birds are disgusting. You should never touch a bird. The only bird I will touch with my bare hands is if it's called a chicken wing, right? So I, 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 I had the sock in my hand, I picked up the bird, and I went to the back of my apartment complex where the pond is, and like, I remember like saying something like, I commit thy bird to you, God. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to be respectful. And so I tossed that bird as far as I can into the pond. And honestly, I think that was very honoring 
to my pet parakeet who died because of the air conditioning being too low, all right? I share this story because this was the earliest time I got to be confronted with the reality of death. And in that moment, I realized something very clearly. That there's no variations of death. You're not kind of dead, sort of dead, or mostly dead. You are either alive or you're dead. And, and, and when we read the Bible today, it also paints a picture that not only you are either physically alive and physically dead, but in a spiritual state, you are either spiritually alive or spiritually dead. And so the letter to the Ephesians talks about this. So before we dive into the letter to the Ephesians, let's read the envelope to the Ephesians. So Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's to the church in Ephesus. And we know the specific year this was written. It was written in AD 62 because this was written during Paul's first imprisonment when he was in Rome. And the purpose of this letter is to be a reminder of the gospel and how it's to shape our lives. Very simple. Uh, uh, Ephesus was a Roman province on uh, in a, in a very wealthy port city over on the west coast of Asia, which today is modern Turkey. And Ephesus at that time was the center of worship for many Greek and Roman gods. So it's, it's kind of evident that this was a mostly Gentile audience, as in these are not Jews, they're Gentiles. So after Paul had visited, shared the gospel, people got saved, they turned away from their pagan gods and started following Jesus. Eventually he went back to Rome, got arrested, and then he penned this letter to the Ephesians. And so if I were to break down, give you a, a very short outline of the book of Ephesians, there's two major sections. Ephesians 1 through 3 are doctrinal. It's a summary of the gospel and its implications. And chapter 4 through 6 is the practical. Paul tells us how we should live as Christians and how we should interact with one another in light of the gospel that he just explained. And so what I want to do is focus on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, because I think it perfectly summarizes the gospel. And, and, and also, this is our testimony. If you are a Christian, these 10 verses is your story. You can plot out in these, these verses right here. So let's start in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. When, when Paul says we were dead, he's not being symbolic. Because sin has entered into the world, your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, uh, brought sin into the world, and, and because you're the great-great-great-great-grandkids of Adam and Eve, you inherit the sin, and when sin came in the world, the Bible says that along with it was death. And because of this, we have physical death. We were never meant to physically die, but because of sin, death came into this world, and not only do we physically die because of sin, but we're spiritually dead. We're born dead on arrival when we come into this world, spiritually dead to God and dead to his kingdom. He explains this more in verses 2 and 3. He says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul describes that while we were the walking dead, while we were living dead in our sins, there are three very powerful influences that are influencing us as we are dead. The first one he mentions is the world. This is the influence or, of our culture and our society over us. Uh, another way to put this is you could say this is your environment that we, you are currently living in or that you grew up in. Uh, um, it is the things that society has accepted 
as fine or good that are actually an offense to God. So we could talk about politics. We could talk about pop culture. I could pull out my phone and show you Twitter and TikTok for about 30 minutes, and we're going to find tons of things that do not honor God or honor his kingdom. But I want to give you the kind of the first moment where I realized that we live in a super backwards world, and I kind of understood, oh, there is a system that's governed in this world that is opposed to God. Let me give you this example. So I lived in Arkansas for three years, and in Arkansas, um, uh, in my church, there was a couple who was from Pakistan. And, uh, and it was, it was, they're, they're a lovely couple, loved Jesus. They had three boys, two of which were in my youth group at the time. And, and I went out to dinner with them. And I, you know, I, you know, the thing you do when, you, when you're out to dinner with another couple, you ask how they met and all that kind of stuff. And they started laughing because they knew this conversation was going to get weird. They said, well, we met in Pakistan, and we, are actually, we were in an arranged marriage. Our parents brought us together. And, like, I don't know how many couples you've met that were in an arranged marriage, but that was the first one. I didn't know what to do. So I kind of just looked at his wife and was like, blink twice if you need help. Like, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. I just never been. I was ignorant. I, not to be, I'm not trying to be offensive. I just didn't know. You know what I'm saying? And they laughed, and they made fun of me, and they teased me, and they said, listen, listen, Frank. In Pakistan, it's not unusual even for Christians to be in arranged marriages. This is a part of our culture. But they said that they would not expect their kids, like their three boys, they're not going to set up an arranged marriage for them. And they, weren't, they, they don't expect most people, especially in America, where this is not a part of our culture, to be in arranged marriage. But they, they explained to me, like, like, this isn't like a force. They, they love each other. He loved her. She loves him. They're Christians. He loves her. Like, Christ loves the church. It's, it's a beautiful marriage with three amazing kids. And, in fact, they enlightened me that, like, if you did some studies, you realize that arranged marriages actually have a lower divorce rate than traditional marriages. And I was, I was blown away by that, but they were insisting that, like, they don't expect other people to, like, follow this. That was just part of their culture. And I thought about that, and I thought, man, it's funny that, like, people think arranged marriages are weird. But, but we think it's cool that there's a show where there's 24 women pitted against each other to compete for the affections of one man that may or may not hand him a flower. You know what I'm saying? And like, we, this man can sleep with all the women and make out with all the women and, and, and the contestants are kind of fighting over and they're getting jealous over each other to determine which one of these women are worthy of marriage. And we watch it on TV thinking, this is so romantic, right? Like, at minimum, you don't have to be a Christian to be like, there's something unusual here. Something doesn't make sense. That we're, we're accepting this as romantic, but faithful couples that are together till the end, till they die, is unusual and weird. There's something upside down about our world and the environment we live in where this world says things that are sinful are good and things that are good are wrong. That's the world we live in. The second influence is the prince and the power of the air. This is Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 calls Satan the god of this world. Satan, or the devil, has one goal and one goal only. His only desire is for you to give God as little glory as possible. So he doesn't care how that happens. He'll distract you. He'll entice you. He'll tempt you. He'll numb you. He'll try to give you the things you want. He, he doesn't care if he is acknowledged or worshipped. All he cares is that you are as useless and as ineffective for God in his kingdom as possible. That is Satan. That is the prince of the power of the air. The third influence he talks about is our flesh, the flesh. We, we talked about this when we went through the book of Galatians. But the flesh are those sinful desires inside of us that tie us to the fall of Adam. 
So the, the, there's something inside of us that we have a sinful disposition and sinful desires to rebel against God and to rebel against his kingdom. And so you have the world, the flesh, and Satan. And all these three influences are in all of us and they're around us. And if I were to sit down with every single one of you and ask you, well, why did you sin this morning or yesterday or earlier this week? I guarantee you, you're going to say one of three answers. You're going to say either, it was my environment. This is how I was raised and so I don't know better. That's the world. Or you're going to say, yo, the devil made me do it. There's some demonic influences in my life and I was, it was scary and so that's why I made that sin, right? That's the devil. Or you're going to say, I was born this way. This is my desire. Who are you to tell me I can't do what I actually want? That's our flesh. All three of these are at work in concert together, and this is where Paul calls us the children of wrath, or rather, more specifically, people deserving of God's wrath. Paul would say there's ultimately two kinds of people in this world. There's the children of God and children of wrath. The former are those who put their faith in Christ and have been justified because of Jesus, and the latter are those who are still under condemnation, deserving of the wrath of God. John puts it like this in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this was our state before Jesus. When God created you, he created you with the intention for you to enjoy him forever, for you to glorify him and to live with him and have a relationship with him, for there not to be any sin or tension or pain or hurt or tears, but for just pure bliss and happiness with our creator forever. But because of sin, we turn, we, we, instead of being children of God, we are in the army of Satan, rebelling against him in a culture that hates God with desires inside of us that demand to rebel against him. This is what theologians call total depravity. Now, I want to explain what total depravity is because sometimes when you hear this word, we kind of like stiffen up and, and get uh, like offended by it. But I want to make sure we understand what total depravity means. Total depravity does not mean that every person is as worse as they could be. Unfortunately, we all have room to be worse, all right? Total depravity does not mean that people are also not, in, like, they're not capable of doing good. We are all created in the image of God. Therefore, that image of God gives us the ability to do some good things. Total depravity means every part of a person, your mind, emotions, heart, and will, is affected and tainted by sin. I'm going to say that again. I think I have it on the screen. Total depravity means every part of a person, mind, emotions, heart, and will, is affected and tainted by sin. So do you see the problem here? Paul tells us that we are dead in our sins, in a world that hates God, that follows the devil, with innate desires to rebel against God. And Paul is saying that we're hopeless. Like, the only thing dead people can do is remain dead. Like, like uh, we, because dead things can't stop being dead, dead things can't make a decision to be alive, without intervention, we are completely hopeless. But praise God, he intervened. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
So because of God, but God, because of his mercy, love, and grace, he reaches down to our level in the midst of our rebellion. In spite of our rebellion, he chooses to pursue us and then makes us alive. He regenerates us. He gives us life. Uh, I had a friend who, uh, who is a dear friend of mine. She went on a missions trip to Papua New Guinea. And, and while, while she was there, she was there for like three months. She said she would go to this beach that no one would go to, mainly because the water was really, really rough. There's a strong current. The waves are big. It crashes against the rocks. So no one goes there, but she would often go there to read her Bible, to pray, and just de- de- think deeply about the Lord. And while she was there, she said, Frank, I, I got this really beautiful illustration of the gospel. Do you want to hear it? And I said, oh, of course. I'm always down for a new sermon illustration. So she said, the gospel's like this. You're in the ocean, and the waves are crashing down on you. And you're drowning. You're like trying to capture your breath and you're flailing your arms. And you realize that the only solution out of this is to scream, Jesus, save me. And you're like shouting, you're flailing, Jesus, save me. And then Jesus is at the shore. And he's like, I got you. And so he comes into the water. He dives in. He gets you. He grabs you. He says, come with me. And he brings you to the shore. And you guys live happily ever after. I said, that's a great story. That's a great illustration. However, the Bible disagrees with it. Because we're not drowning in our sins. We're not flailing our arms, shouting out to Jesus. If we're going to be accurate to this illustration, according to Scripture, we're at the bottom of the ocean. We're dead. We have no idea that there's even something better at the shore. We're not thinking about Jesus, hoping he saves us. We're chilling in the bottom of the ocean, and there's a coral reef over us, and we love it because little Nemo fishes are swimming everywhere. We love the bottom of the ocean. We're not shouting out to Jesus. We don't even know he exists. We don't even care about him. We're in the bottom of the ocean dead. And Jesus, who loves us, who desires to be in relationship with us, dives into the depths, into the bottom of the ocean, rips that coral reef off of you, grabs you, brings you to shore, and then he breathes life into you. This is the goodness of our Savior, that though we were sinners, while we were still in our rebellion, Jesus saved us. Salvation is not Jesus healing sick people to good health. Jesus is resurrecting dead people to life. When we weren't looking for him, we didn't want anything to do with him, but God's mercies are always greater than our sins. His love is greater than our hate. And his grace is always bigger than our failures. He loved us in spite of us. He came down to get back what was rightfully his. The broken relationship we had with God that was severed because of sin. He fixed it and he took the greatest measure to fix it his entire life. So we were once dead in our sins. But God stepped in. Let me ask you this question. When was your but God moment? Because if you're a Christian, you had one. Everyone should have one. For me, I was 17 years old in the Bahamas. I didn't care about God. All I cared about was girls and football. But God intervened in my life when I was in the island. He introduced me to this woman who was dying of HIV, but she loved Jesus. And through that conversation and through a number of events that happened that week, 
I found myself on the last day of the island with my hands up in the air, praising Jesus, knowing that when I get back to the, when I get back to the States, people are going to be really confused because the Frank that left America is no longer the same Frank who's coming back into America right now because Jesus intervened. We were once dead in our sins, but God intervened. When was your but God moment? Verse 6, and Jesus raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves when we read that, what does it mean that we're seated in the heavenly places? Because right now it feels like we're seated at Epicos, right? What does it mean we're seated in the heavenly places? Though you are physically here, positionally, you're in heaven. The moment God saves you, your residency changes, your home status changes. John 15, Philippians 3, Hebrews 13, all tells us that this is not our home, that our residence is in heaven, and we're just waiting to get there. So congratulations. If you're a Christian, you're an immigrant, and we're just waiting to go back home Uh, uh, because positionally, our residency is in the new city. Our residency is in heaven, and we're just waiting to get there. This is why if you ever feel like no matter what side of the political argument, no matter what's going on in this world, you just feel like your values don't line up with this world, you're in good company because you were not meant for this world. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Uh, there is a pastor I heard re- retranslate this passage this way. He says, God loves you so much that it will take him all of eternity just to show you how much he loves you. I think that's beautiful. I hope you are not simply excited about heaven simply because of what you're going to get when you get there. Or whatever you've heard growing up with the crowns and and the streets of gold and the mansion, whatever things you heard, I hope what makes you most excited about glory is the person who lives there. And that's our king. That's Jesus. Verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. The, the reconciliation between us and God, hear me, has nothing to do with how awesome you are. It has nothing to do with what you've done or what you have achieved. Paul wants to make it clear. It isn't about you. When it comes to your salvation, you didn't earn this. Salvation is 100% God's work in us. We just have to have faith. Now you might be saying, Frank, 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 hold on, hold on. The passage, we just read it, it says you're saved by grace through faith. So there was a moment I put my faith in Jesus. So I did something. What do you mean it's all God? I put my faith in Jesus. And that's a good point. Let me explain something that can be confusing sometimes. Because this passage makes it clear here. Faith doesn't save you. It's grace that saves you. Faith is the instrument by which grace is received. Think about it like a syringe. When you need life-saving medicine, the syringe doesn't save you. It's the medicine within the syringe that you need in order to be saved. Faith is the avenue in which grace from God comes to you. And regardless, the faith and the grace, according to this verse, we are reminded that all of it's a gift from God. So even the faith to believe in Jesus is given to us by God as a gift. So I can't even flex about the time where I put my faith in Jesus because God gave me the ability to even have faith in Jesus. So let me say it this way. 
there's a moment that you probably had. I know I had it. Like, I know at Epicos, there's, there's a couple songs that really move me, that really get me into my, to, to, to worship. And, and if you ever come to Mayfair Road and you see me in the front row during the song, I start swaying by, to, by side to side. I start moving my hands like I'm a rapper. And my favorite, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We, I'm, I'm off key like crazy, but I'm just loving Jesus. It's just joyful noise. It's mostly noise, right? But like, I'm worshiping Jesus and I'm getting it. And so there's probably maybe a moment in your life where you heard a song and you're like, yo, this is, this is hitting me different, right? Or maybe you heard a sermon that just caused you to get to surrender. It crushed you. It moved you. You're like, I need this Jesus. I might not understand all the theology. I might not understand anything. But what I do know is I need Jesus to be the payment for my sins. And I want to put my faith in Jesus. If you had that moment, listen to me. That was real. I had that moment. No one can take that from you. That was authentic and real. But way before you got to that seat that you're sitting in right now, way before you pulled up to the church, before you even acknowledged God's existence, according to this passage, God was already wooing you to himself. He was already changing your, your situation. He was softening your heart so that you can put your faith and trust in him. God was working before you even acknowledged him. Your response to God in faith is the evidence that you have received his grace. It is because his loving kindness that made you right with God. It's not because of how awesome you are, how faithful you are, or how good you are. It is by his grace alone that you have been saved. And, and, and you tap into that grace when you put your faith in him, which is also a gift from Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So because God has reconciled our relationship with him, he declares us his workmanship. So our executive pastor, Michael Morgan, who's also my co-leader in my small group, just had baby number four this last week. Um, and it's Mother's Day, so I should clarify. Maggie had baby number four. Um, but God bless Maggie. God bless Michael. Because now with baby number four, they're playing zone defense in their house. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's intense for them. So pray for them. But we're very excited about them because the Morgan home just got a little bit bigger. But their first baby that's pictured here, her name is Poema. And you may have never met a girl or never met a person in general with the name Poema. And what's interesting about that name is the meaning of that name, poema, finds its roots in this passage in Ephesians 2, verse 10. The word workmanship in Greek is the word poema, which means God's masterpiece. It means work of art. And I think if I keep saying the word enough, you hear the word that we get an English word from, poema. What's the word? Poem. And so in all of creation, in everything that God has made, in everything that's beautiful, everything that's amazing, you, who have been made alive in Jesus, is God's poema. You are his greatest work of art. You are his masterpiece. You are God's song in creation. You are God's poem in creation. When God brought you from death to life in Christ, you are his new creation, and because of that, you have a new, unique purpose in this world. If we were to go to our art museum 
and, and, and we were to see some pretty amazing pieces of art. One thing good art does is it does something inside of it. It forces us to do something. And what it does is it forces us to be impressed with the artist, not the art, because art can't paint itself. It, when we see good art, we should, we, we, it should cause us to be like, man, this artist is amazingly talented. Good art always reflects how great the artist is. And what Paul is saying is that of all the things God created, seen and unseen, his crowning achievement, his greatest of all things that he has made, he has made is you when he made you a new creation in Jesus. And so this should cause us to feel a couple things. One, your value and worth is rooted in who God has declared you to be. It is not that dude who's DMing you at two in the morning. It's not your grades or your salary. It's not how clean your house is when people come over. It's not how nice your car is. Your worth is not based on the approval of others or the achievements that you have made. Your value and worth is rooted in who God has declared you to be. And who God says you are is the most important thing about you. God said you were once dead, but you are now alive in him because of his love and his grace and his mercy. Because of that, you are his masterpiece, his work of art, his poem in all of creation. So you are God's workmanship, but for what purpose? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you put your faith in Christ, that is the moment when God wanted to start using you for his kingdom. You might say, Frank, I don't know, man. I'm a little rough around the edges. I'm a little, I'm a young in faith. Maybe God's not ready to use me. I need to mature a little bit. There's a quote by Martin Luther I love. He says, God can draw a straight line with crooked sticks. We're all crooked sticks, but in God's hands, we can do some pretty amazing things. We are to simply walk in the good works he made us for. That word walk is found all over the book of Ephesians. The way Paul is using it is he's talking about how we order our behavior, how we measure our behavior. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, it says that we were walking dead, following the world, Satan, and our flesh. In verse 10, we just read that we are to walk in the good works that God prepared us for. Further on, we are to walk in unity. We are to walk in new life. We are to walk in love. We are to walk in wisdom. And at the very end of the book, he says, watch out. It doesn't say walk, but he says watch out. And we're going to talk more about that next week when we talk about the armor of God. Walking is an important theme here in the book of Ephesians. And as we close, I want us to reflect on two things from these ten amazing verses. If you have your study guide with you, I want you to open to page 57. If you don't have your study guide, I want to challenge you. This is the, the five bucks this book costs is worth getting so that you can simply, when you hear the sermon on Sunday, you can reflect on it more. But in this book, the study guide that we have, uh, we have um, these section called Formation and Application. And there's these two paragraphs in here that I really want us to land my message in uh, that I think are going to be helpful for us to, to take on this week. The first section, the first question, there's this paragraph that I think is great. It says, it is evident in Scripture that we can do nothing to earn salvation on our own. It is freely given from God through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. It is easy to find ourselves sometimes thinking that we must do certain things or act a certain way to be saved. However, this is not the case. And we can rest in the assurance of salvation by grace through faith. The good news is, you can rest. It, 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 you were not created to try to impress God. 
Only Jesus can impress God. You were created to worship him. And what that may mean for some of you is to reorient your heart on how you do this or how you're thinking about certain things. So, for example, when the offering buckets come around, if you think, I need to put this money in here because I want to make sure God is happy with me this week, then don't put any money in the offering bucket. But if what you're thinking is when you put the money in the offering bucket as a response to God's goodness and kindness in your life, and because he has been so generous to me, the way I want to show my generosity back is by putting money towards the mission and the vision of the church, then that is worship. If you're thinking when you come up to the Lord's table today for, for, for communion, I need to take this. I need to take the bread and take the cup because by doing so, God will be happy with me or I will earn favor with God. Then we'd rather you to stay in your chair. But if you see the Lord's table as, since, since I'm remembering that Jesus has reconciled my relationship with the Father and therefore because of that, my relationship with one another can be reconciled, then that's worship. Come to the Lord's table and worship him. If you're, if you're going to small group and think, well, i got to write these questions and i gotta be, I got to make sure I, I, I spend a lot of time reading the Bible because I want God to see that I'm busy hanging out with these other Christians. If you're just trying to impress God with giving up your Wednesday night, then, then, then I'd rather you not go to small group. But if you're going to small group as a means to grow in your faith, to be in community with others, to, to pray for one another and carry each other's burdens, that is worship. Rest in the fact that you are saved by grace through faith and demonstrate that through worship, demonstrate this, this masterpiece that you are through worship to God. The second thing I want to talk about is for you to be the masterpiece who God has created you to be. Back on that page 57, it says, Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with the forgiveness of sins alone. While we can't earn our salvation, once saved, we are to work alongside God in the work he's doing to shape us into the image of Jesus. Uh, in other words, God created us to do good works, and those good works take some effort on our part. On the back of this book, on page 124, there is a list of spiritual practices. And what spiritual practices are, are things that help orient our hearts, mold us to be more in the image of Jesus, and helps us to live out these good works that God prepared beforehand that we should live in. And you are not saved by your good works, but your good works is how the rest of the world is going to see the glory of God through you. And so as God's work of art, we ought to demonstrate to the world how great the artist is. And, and, and so every single uh, uh, day, when I, every single Sunday when I come to church and I see the Connections team faithfully, quietly packing the bulletins together and, and making the coffee and opening doors for people, that is a demonstration of the glory of God for us. Every single Sunday when I get to sneak down to the kids' ministry and say hi to all the volunteers there and watch them faithfully show um, the children in our church who Jesus is, that is demonstrating the creativity of God. I see the artistry of God every Wednesday morning when I gather with my men's small group and we study God's word together and we pray for one another and we walk through each other in our life together. That is demonstrating the glory of God in our lives. So my question for you is this. How will you demonstrate the artistry, the creativity, and glory of God in your life this week? What is the good work that you can show the world how great the artist is? 
So hey, pick up this book, check out the spiritual practices in the back of the book, go to the hub. If you have questions, you want to dive deeper into this passage, I have a lot of resources for you there. And let me remind you this. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his work of art, his poem. And you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And God prepared you to do those good works beforehand so that you walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good to us. As we read, while we were still sinners, Christ, you, Christ died for us, Lord. You, despite the fact that we had all these influences in our life desiring us to, to pull away from you, whether it's our own flesh, whether it's the devil, or the, 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 the environment that we're living in, Lord, you stepped in and you rescued us. And you didn't just, just make us a little bit better. You brought us from death to life. And Lord, in our response to that, you have created us to be your work of art, to, to demonstrate to the world how great you are, how good of a God you are, and how much you love us, Lord. And I pray that we don't al allow ourselves to dive into some sort of licentiousness to think because God has rescued us in spite of us that we can do whatever we want or get boastful and prideful in our legalism and say that we have something to do with the fact that God chose me. But Lord, help us to stay remaining in that beautiful piece of grace that you have rescued us in spite of us and you have created us to do these good works to show the world the beauty of your grace and your love for us. Lord, be with us this week. Be with us every day. In your son's name I pray. Amen.